Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for June 5th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to catch up with a whole bunch of film and television news and then speak with Slash Film's managing editor, Jacob Hall, about his visit to the New Zealand set of a movie called Mortal Engines. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me today are Slash Film weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Fwai Tranbui. Hey, everyone. Guys, I'm recording from Florida right now. I'm at my in-law's house, so if the audio sounds any different for any reason, that's why. Bear with us if it sounds weird. I think hopefully I did this right and everything should sound fine. So let's go ahead and dive into the news today. Let's kick it off with a story about the Roseanne uh, TV show that was canceled on ABC. We talked about that on a recent episode of the show, but now a spinoff show without Roseanne seems like it's very close to happening. So Sarah Gilbert, who plays Darlene, Roseanne's daughter, on the show was basically the the person who got the Roseanne revival to happen in the first place and she I guess went to ABC and pitched the idea of making her character the main character of the new main character of Roseanne I don't know what they're going to call the show if they're going to rebrand it or what but uh, maybe the Connors or something, the character's last names, I don't know. Uh, but John Goodman said that he was apparently very interested in the project as well. So there, nothing has been officially uh, signed on the dotted line yet, but 
I guess this is looking pretty good. Uh, a formal announcement could come this week, the Hollywood Reporter said, to make this reboot official. Um, and pretty much everybody in the cast, except for Roseanne Barr, will be coming back. Uh, and Bruce Helford, who is the showrunner, is also going to be coming back as long as everything you know sort of shakes out. So, um, so I saw a fun tweet that said, why don't we just get Claire Haxable, Felicia Rashid, Rashad from The Cosby Show, and John Goodman to do a sort of cheaper by the dozen style spinoff and save both of these shows from their uh, tainted legacy. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. A, a Cosby Show Roseanne combo that that would be uh, pretty interesting. But I don't know. I mean, because I haven't watched this revival of Roseanne. I, I'm not sure how the family dynamics have changed. Have either of you seen, uh, tuned into any of these newer episodes of Roseanne at all? Unfortunately, ha- I haven't. I was never a big fan of Roseanne, uh, the original series, but I heard that the it got off to a good start, the new series did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brad, have you had a chance to take a look at this? No, I didn't love the original Roseanne, and honestly, once she started running off at the mouth, and I saw heard you know, what the certain episodes were about and things like that. I just didn't really seem like it was something that I needed to waste my time watching. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt as well. I feel bad that we don't have any representation on this episode of anybody who's tuned in. But um, but yeah, you know, the, the cast is otherwise pretty great. You know, John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, who plays Roseanne's sister. I mean, they all deserve better than being tethered to Roseanne Barr's toxic orbit, as uh, Chris Evangelista writes in this article. So you can read more about that at Slash Film. We'll keep you guys posted if we uh, hear any more about this potential spinoff actually coming to pass, but uh, let's talk about something that I don't think any of us really saw coming, a news story that broke today about a, a new project from uh, singer-songwriter Justin Bieber. H.C., tell us about this one. Believe it or not, <laughs> Boo. Justin Bieber is um, developing a animated Cupid movie in which he will star as the Roman god of love and mischief. So this is a movie that he is producing along in partnership with Mythos Studios, which was co-founded by his longtime music talent manager, manager Scooter Braun, and uh, David Maisel. So this is a movie that will be is in development. We don't really know any details about it, except for that Justin Bieber will be voicing uh, Cupid. Hopefully the kind of silly, cherubic version of Cupid and not like a more serious version, because I would probably only be on board with this movie if we saw Justin Bieber trying to be uh you know as as masculine and cool as he is in like what by voice while voicing this like silly naked baby (laughs) I mean silly naked baby is basically what I think about when I think about (laughs) Justin Bieber these days uh Brad do you have any thoughts about this story um I mean Justin Bieber isn't really doing much for anybody anymore. <laughs> uh, that's pretty. That's pretty generally dismissive. Of... <laughs> um, you know, I feel like like the only thing that I feel like can, good can come out of this is you know maybe they can make good use of his you know big hits uh, and like just keep repeating "baby" again since that's what Cubit looks like. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, that... that would be great. <laughs> Uh, all right, yeah, let's um, let's just forget that ever happened and uh, move on to our next story. Something that I think we probably will ultimately wish never happened, which is a Willy Wonka origin movie that Warner Brothers has been developing for a little while, and now a short list has come out uh, that features a, a few actors who are 
supposedly on this list who might play a younger version of Willy Wonka. Brad, tell us about this. Yeah, so not too long ago, we found out that there is a new Willy Wonka movie in development that Paddington director Paul King is going to be at the helm of. It's a project we've been hearing about for a couple of years now. Uh, Harry Potter franchise producer David Heyman is behind it, and he previously described it as not really a remake, but more of an origin story that gives us a better idea of who Willy Wonka is and how he came to be this confectionery king. Um, we don't really know too many specific story details, but now we have an idea of who the kind of people they're looking at to play the role. And it, uh, the short list includes three names, uh, or at least three names that we're being told about at this time. And that is, uh, they are Donald Glover, Ezra Miller, and Ryan Gosling. Um, what's, uh, what's interesting about this is they kind of all three bring something different to the table for what could be three very different versions of Willy Wonka. Um, you know, I could see Donald Glover bring a little bit of his Lando charm to Willy Wonka, but he also has a wackier side to him where if you've seen you know, him on Community or uh, any of his stand-up, that he uh, can make, make him just as, you know, ex eccentric as Gene Wilder's version was. Ezra Miller uh, could bring some flair to it. You know, his performances in movies like Perks of Being a Wallflower and even some of his characteristics in The Flash um, would make him a bit of a, a fun, lively Willy Wonka. And Ryan Gosling, if you just watch The Nice Guys, like everything that Ryan Gosling does in that movie... Uh, gives him uh, like the perfect uh, opportunity to become a great Willy Wonka. He's got good slapstick comedy instincts. He's got great comedic timing when it comes to his line delivery, and he he can play goofy really well. Um, but the question that I keep asking myself is whether or not this is something that anybody really wants or needs. You know, I just I think Willy Wonka is a much more interesting character when you don't know that much about him. Um, I didn't actually hate Tim Burton's new adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But the parts that I didn't like were the elements where they constantly kept flashing back to his childhood and filling in gaps and trying to explain how he was the way he was. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you know, it's it more so. Really, it's just like I just don't think that I don't know. There's much more that can be explored with Willy Wonka that is interesting, and it feels like we're starting to dig into the well that you know Alice in Wonderland dried up really quickly yeah so HT before we started recording you saw that this was going to be an origin story and you said that you didn't want this to happen so knowing <laughs> that these three actors are you know potentially in contention for this role is any I guess is there a version that stars any of these particular people that would make you more likely to be interested in seeing this I mean, I would probably watch anything that Donald Glover is in. I think that he would be bring an interesting twist to any character. I just don't think that Willy Wonka is a character that needs an origin story. Like Brad was saying, my my least favorite parts too of the Tim Burton Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie was um, the Willy Wonka origin story because mm -hmm. I feel like Willy Wonka works better as like almost a trickster god in a way. He's like this weird, chaotic good figure that hovers over all these other characters and giving him an origin story just it's just defeats the purpose of the character you know this you know children's story character that was written however many years ago so mm -hmm. i don't i don't know i mean <laughs> this is one of the those ideas in hollywood that you're just like okay i guess this is happening we'll just 
see how how it works out. Yeah, I'm not crazy about it either. The only thing that gives me like a glimmer of hope is that the screenwriter for this movie is somebody named Simon Rich, who is the creator of uh, an FXX comedy called Man Seeking Woman that was canceled after I think three seasons. Not a lot of people watched it, but I, I watched the show and I loved it. And I thought it was really smart. And so I'm very interested to see what Simon Rich does with this script. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, on from the outside looking in, certainly that there's no reason for this project to exist. I'm also wondering, do you guys think that either of these, you know, Brad, you're, you're mentioning uh, both on the podcast and in your article about um, the way that each of these guys could potentially bring their own spin to the more eccentric, quirky uh, aspects of this role. But do either of you have any thoughts about um, who who of Glover, Miller, or Gosling might best be able to capture these sort of um, the darkness in Willy Wonka? Do you think there's somebody who could strike that balance particularly well among these guys? I mean, like like I said, I, th- I think each of them has you know their own unique way that they could approach the role and hit all the the key points that that need to be struck to make this a good Willy Wonka you know characterization. Uh, they they've all done more darker, serious sides um, in their acting career, but they also all have really great uh, comedy chops as well. And so uh, there's not really one that I favor more than the other, um, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's uh, that's, that's an interesting question. All right, well, let's talk about another prequel that, uh, I mean, arguably maybe didn't need to exist at all, and that is Solo, A Star Wars Story. The film uh, just experienced its second weekend at the box office. HT, give us an update on how Solo is performing. Well, Solo, A Star Wars Story continues to fly so low at the box office. HT, you're tearing it up with the puns today. <laughs> Amazing today. So, um, it had... The second weekend in its um, in its run has saw a drastic 65% drop, which is not unusual for any big blockbuster. Last Jedi notably had a 67.5% drop, and other Star Wars films like um, Phantom Menace also saw around a uh, 64.5% drop. So it's common, but it's a pretty drastic one for uh, Solo because it didn't do that well on its opening weekend in the first place. And with this um, week, the second weekend drop, it may end up being the lowest grossing Star Wars movie uh, in history if you take in inflation mm-hmm. costs. Um, so it's, it's still sat at number one at the box office domestically. But it did lose its number one spot to Deadpool 2 in the international box office. So it's just another sort of kick uh, to Solo while it's down in terms of its box office. It's uh, dropping still more and it seems like it won't, uh, it might break even. Uh, That's just speculation on my part, but it will probably only make back, maybe beat uh, Empire Strikes Back's raw grosses, but won't come close to its that film's adjusted for inflation's gross of 722 million Mm -hmm. so it it uh yeah it's it seems like this is a disney's big hit for this decade yeah um or or, uh not hit but yeah big loss um so i mean we actually wrote another article on the site about how some analysts are blaming poor marketing for the reason that solo is has underperformed so drastically um do either of you i guess now that we've you know we're another week removed from its debut and you've been able to sort of uh get a sense from twitter and and different uh, you know maybe people in your own life who've seen the movie or not seen the movie for any given reason do you guys have 
have any a better sense of uh, of why or a better guess of why this movie has underperformed so well? Do you think marketing really is the uh, the culprit in this case, uh, Brad? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, no, I honestly wouldn't blame the marketing. The marketing was all over the place, and you know, I mean, this is a movie that was advertised during the Super Bowl, you know. So I feel like really the big thing was that this just didn't feel like a Star Wars movie that was a must-see for a lot of people. I have several friends who like the Star Wars movies, but they're not hardcore fans like I am, um, and they just didn't feel an inherent need to rush out and see it. And part of the, part of it came from the fact that there was a Star Wars movie that just came out five months ago. Mm-hmm. But another fact was just that this just didn't really seem like a story that anybody was really all that interested in seeing unfold and like people just felt like they could probably wait and see it when it, you know, it comes out on, on home video later down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, I guess the point that they made about the marketing was that specifically this, this market, this, uh, I guess research firm thought that Disney did a poor job in selling Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo. They said that the teaser trailer, uh, by their count only had about 10 seconds of screen time where his face was clearly in the picture. And I think that was something that we talked about uh, when those early trailers were coming out, like we wanted to see actually a little bit more of Han Solo in Solo, a Star Wars story marketing. Um, HT, do you think that might have had anything to do with it? Or do you think there was just uh, you know too many other factors to, to really consider here? I don't think marketing was the only culprit, but I think it was one of many culprits. Uh, like Brad said, I think it was the close release to uh, Last Jedi. I do think marketing did play a big part, though, because they only started advertising this movie about four months before uh, the film came out. And uh, usually you have a little bit more of a lead-in up, up for a big blockbuster like this. Right. But um, And also... I'm not sure if like this played a part, but the reports of its uh, behind-the-scenes troubles, and um, yeah, and also the fact that no one really was itching to to see the story be told. So um, I do think, yeah, it's a combination of all those factors, and it just had a really crowded competition at the box office in the summer. It had Infinity War and Deadpool 2, and those were big heavy hitters that were still holding their own at the top of the box office. Yeah, I think it's just it's really like a perfect storm of of bad timing all around. That's sort of like, you know, Disney uh, or I guess Lucasfilm used to own the summers, but um, the box office landscape has changed so drastically since Star Wars movies were really, you know, owned the and dominated those summer slots that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure if we're ever going to see another Star Wars movie play in the summer again. They're probably going to move back to December and just try to uh, lock down that holiday season. But uh, let's move on to our next story. And that is Rush Hour 4 might still be happening if Brett Ratner is to believe is to be believed. Uh, Brett, tell us about this one. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, this is more so along the fact of Brett Ratner having flights of fancy and being completely out of touch with what's going on in the world and not being able to read the room. Uh, we've been hearing about the possibility of Rush Hour 4 happening for some time. It's it's something that Chris Tucker would like to do, something that Jackie Chan is interested in doing. Uh, but the problem is that Brett Ratner has been the director behind all three of those movies. And apparently, despite being disgraced by multiple sexual harassment allegations and uh, losing his deal you know, uh, in, in Hollywood uh, um, at, at Warner Brothers and also just being a, a general douchebag, uh, he still thinks that he is going to make a big comeback by directing Rush Hour 4. He thinks that that's his way back into the good graces of Hollywood and that, you know, he'll be able to direct this big blockbuster and all will be forgiven. But that's not really how things work, uh, Brett Ratner. So uh, I think that there's still a chance that Rush Hour 4 could happen. 
right now the project's in turnaround, which means that uh, a script can be commissioned with outside financing. So it's it's possible that it could happen and it wouldn't have to happen in-house at, at Warner Brothers um, or at least with you know Warner Brothers people working on it. So we'll see if they can get something together. Um, you know, I just... I'm not necessarily sure. Again, this is a project that anybody is really clamoring for. Uh, the Rush Hour movies kind of started to run their course, you know, once the third movie came around. And, you know, while there might be some nostalgia attached to it since it's been a while since we've gotten a Rush Hour movie, I really just don't know if it's something that is wholly necessary. You know, at this point, I would just rather see Jackie Chan do something more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, e- either way, it's the... Uh, this is not going to end, end well for Brett Ratner, and the guy just needs to go away. Yeah, you mentioned that this is not how things work, but I think, like, historically, it kind of is how things worked. If you look at, like, uh, Mel Gibson's career, right? Like, you know, he had this big controversy, and he went away for a while, and then just sort of Hollywood has embraced him with open arms again, it yeah, seems. Yeah, but this, this feels a little, a little bit different now. Like, it seems like the playing field has changed, you know, e- even since, you know, since then. And, like, Mel Gibson was never accused of any sexual harassment stuff, and this seems like the kind of thing that they're not letting people get away with anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, The landscape has changed now in the wake of the Weinstein scandal, like the Weinstein effect and everything like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to, that's what I was going to say. Like, do you think that that, the recent change that we're, like, still actually in the middle of experiencing right now is going to be enough to make sure that this doesn't happen? HG, do you think, do you think we're going to see Brett Ratner direct Rush Hour 4? I don't think so, especially if the studio is bulking like this. Uh, I think he's just kind of blowing a lot of hot air at this moment. And while Rush Hour 4 is a sequel that I think a lot of people would like to see and that the stars are on board with, I don't think that Brett Ratner will be able to um, get behind the helm for this. Yeah. So let's talk, let's transition from that into another uh, sequel that maybe the stars are on board for and people want to see, and that's Legally Blonde 3. I didn't really expect that we would see another entry in this franchise, but it looks like this is going to happen, right? Oh my god. Oh my god, you guys. Legally <laughs> Bond 3 may be officially happening. And yes, it's not a sequel that I expected either because Legally Blonde 2 was pretty terrible, but MGM is reportedly in talks with Reese Witherspoon to have her reprise the role as Elle Woods, feminist icon. And um, this will come more than 17 years after the original film's release and 15 years after Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde. Uh, But if you don't count the director-to-video sequel, Legally Blondes, which technically was Legally Blonde 3, but we all are better off for getting that one anyways. (laughs) So um, MGM is currently nearing a deal with Witherspoon, who is also set to... uh, executive produce this film um, under her new banner and uh, Kristen Smith and Karen McCullough who adapted the novel for the first film the 2001 Legally Blonde are also in final talks to write the script for the Legally Blonde sequel so this is um, there's currently it's all in talks right now they don't have a director on board yet but it looks like MGM is uh, actively scouting out how to make this film happen so I have to admit that when I saw this, I was, you know, in, when this first movie came out in 2001, I was very much in a, a phase of my life where I was trying to be cool and refuse to admit that uh, that I could like any sort of romantic comedy. But I feel like in the years since, like this movie has, I, I've certainly grown a little bit more fond of it and, and <laughs> you know, willfully admit that now. But um, But I feel like this is a movie that has a huge following, like surprisingly so. And I think it's because of the inspirational character of Elle Woods, right, H.E.? I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. 
I definitely agree. I actually have a friend who was inspired to become a law student after watching Legally Blonde. And she's a, Elwood's is a character who isn't typically, you know, like the badass female character that you see uh, exalted in so many movies and TV shows. But she's really a strong female role model and female character in her own right in that she proves that you don't have to be, you can be feminine and you can be, uh, you can love pink and you can you know, cry and everything and still be a strong female character and, and, uh, prove people wrong. So it's a, she's a great fem, like female hero. And I think that she's, uh, Elle Woods and Reese Witherspoon's depiction of Elle Woods has, uh, definitely amassed the cult following so much so that a musical has been launched, one that's, uh, won a bunch of Tonys. So I, I'm really excited for this because yeah, now there's like a stronger, uh, following around Legally Blonde than ever, I think. Yeah, and I mean, with Reese Witherspoon sort of riding high off of Big Little Eyes, like, are we on the cusp of a Witherspoon-essence? Is, that, is yeah. that what's happening right now? Um, I'm down. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. So uh, let's talk about our next story, and that is a Cannonball Run remake. Uh, Brad, who has been lined up to potentially direct this movie? Well, over the years, the Cannonball remake has gone in and out of development with new directors all the time. Uh, Guy Ritchie was once involved. Uh, Ross and Thurber Marshall was once on board. Uh, and it's, it's always, you know, fluctuated here and there. But this time, uh, the, the new director who is in early talks to direct the project over at Warner Brothers is Doug Lyman, the director of Edge of Tomorrow and American Made. Uh, right now, he's there's still it's obviously early days as far as getting him on board. There's a good chance he could end up falling away from the project, as many directors have. Uh, but if the the deal comes together, then he'll be working from the script that was written by Thomas Lennon and Robert Ben Grant, who wrote the Night at the Museum franchise. They also worked on Baywatch, though, as I understand it, their Baywatch script was severely changed by the time it made it to the big screen mm-hmm. um but there, there will be an, a new writer that will come on to do another pass on the script so there's a chance that the same thing could happen with this movie that happened with Baywatch. it's hard to tell um but yeah for, the, for those who don't know cannibal run is a movie that came out in 1981 and it's one of these uh big caper movies where a whole bunch of famous people like burt reynolds roger moore farrah fawcett uh dean martin sammy davis jr dom DeLuise were all part of these uh, teams that competed against each other in this illegal cross-country race. Um, and so it's it has a lot of fun, uh, the potential to be a lot of fun anyway, if they can do the same thing and get a lot of famous people together and do this big you know, cross-country car ch- a chase where they're all pulling tricks and hijinks on each other, trying to stop each other from winning. I think it could be really fun. But again, this is a movie that has been in development for so long and, you know, it's it's a toss up as to whether it'll come together this time. So do you think Lyman is uh, somebody who's well suited for a movie like this? I was thinking about his recent filmography and he's directed movies like Edge of Tomorrow and, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Jumper and, and films that aren't necessarily that, that wouldn't necessarily um, draw you draw a straight line from those to this kind of ensemble movie. But then I remembered that one of his first films was Go and that's very much an ensemble film. Do you think that he that this could be sort of like a return to his uh, his early days for him? Uh, partially, but I, I think really the key to what, what this movie could be like is uh, looking at a movie like Edge of Tomorrow, which has a lot of really funny stuff in it without being a straight-up comedy, and mm. it, but it also has some fantastic action sequences. Um, and even American Maid has, has some levity throughout because the story of you know this commercial airline pilot running drugs and guns for you know all these different government organizations and for uh you know crime lords was is kind of funny in itself and there's plenty of you know amusing situations that came out of that so 
Um, I'm, I'm interested to see if how he can balance, you know, the tone of this movie if if the remake ends up being something akin to the original Cannonball Run. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the action is, you know, definitely a big star of it. Uh, at least it wasn't the original because it was directed by Hal Needham, you know, a famous stuntman. And so it's it, it's a toss up. I, I'm I'm not sure that Lyman can really make it uh, much of a comedy, but hopefully the script that Lennon and Grant wrote will help with that. Yeah, and I think as you mentioned before, the cast is going to play a huge part in this. If they can pull together uh, some unexpected and and really like a fun combination of people, that could theoretically do a lot of the work for them right there. So um, we'll have to keep our eyes on this one. So let's talk about our last news story of, of the day, and that is Noah Hawley's Doctor Doom movie. What is the status on this film, HD? So Noah Hawley gave an update on his Doctor Doom movie, which was first announced at last year's Comic-Con and stirred up a lot of excitement amongst fans of his really surreal, radical take on the X-Men antihero in Legion. So uh, he will be working on he's working on a Doctor Doom movie and confirmed that he has already finished a script. But that's as far as the movie is for now, because it's facing a hurdle of obstacles, including uh, Holly's own pack schedule. Not only is he overseeing Legion and Fargo at, at FX, but he's working on uh, Pale Blue Dot, which is an astronaut feature film starring Natalie Portman and John Hamm. And he's in the midst of preparing to shoot that film right now. Uh, and not to mention the other hurdle, which is the big elephant in the room with anything regarding Fox uh, is the deal with Disney and potentially now with Comcast. Mm -hmm. So Disney was, as you all know, is set to acquire Fox in a historic deal. But then Comcast recently swooped in with their own potential deal to sort of derail those talks. And now the rights to the Fantastic Four and to an extent Doctor Doom, who is a famous villain uh, of the Fantastic Four, are up in the air right now. And so no one knows whether 20th Century Fox will be able to go through with this film while these deals are still being negotiated. So, Brad, you're on the superhero beat for Slash Film all the time, writing about superhero news, all the the little, uh, every little update, really, in superhero bits that you write for the, the site every day. Do you think that uh, a Doctor Doom movie written and directed by Noah Hawley is a good idea, first of all, because I don't think I've ever actually talked to you about this subject before. And then also, do you think that it's going to happen, uh, you know, sometime in the next year or so? Uh, the, the chance of it happening is really what's up in the air simply because of, you know, the, the Fox Disney merger and it's, it's hard to tell what Fox Marvel projects are actually going to move forward with the same trajectory trajectory they have now. Um, since Dr. Doom is such an outlier of a movie too, it's, it's really tough to say if this would even come together, even if that deal doesn't come through, if, you know, Fox stayed on their current path. Um, and me personally, I don't necessarily have an investment in Doctor Who or Doctor Who, Doctor Doom as a, <laughs> as a character. Um, but our own Jacob Hall, uh, he's a, um, a pretty big Doctor Doom fan. He actually even just got a, a like a Sideshow Collectibles premium format figure uh, as an early birthday gift. Um, and he was uh, recently telling me that as a character, he is very fascinating uh, besides just being the villain of the Fantastic Four, which is what he's been relegated to in the movies so far. So somebody like Noah Hawley, who has done fantastic work with the series Legion on FX, could really take the character and maybe do something with him that we wouldn't expect to see, you know, uh, in a movie like this. Maybe go against the conventions of what we expect from a superhero movie or even a movie that where focuses on on the villain. So I think that there's 
the prospects for something interesting to be done here. But again, whether it happens is there's a lot of moving parts that need to come into place before that's the case. Yeah, for sure. And as you mentioned, Holly is definitely like a subversive uh, filmmaker, writer, what have you. So uh, I'm definitely I hope that he would tap in and, and sort of, uh, yeah, tap into those comic roots and some of those off the beaten path stories that uh, that flesh out that character a little bit more than just the two dimensional villain that we've seen in the previous Fantastic Four films. But uh, all right, that's going to be the end of our news section. So I'm going to let you guys go before I bring Jacob on to talk about Mortal Engines. Where can we find more of your work online? Brad, let's start with you. You can check me out on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderson. I'm always writing stuff at slashfilm.com. And I've got my own podcast called Go Fix Yourself, and it's available on iTunes and some other areas. HT? You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. All right. Thanks, guys. Joining us now is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Jacob, how's it going? It's going okay. I'm happy to be here and happy to finally talk about this set visit after like over a year now. Yeah. So last year, you traveled to New Zealand to check out the set of a movie called Mortal Engines. So give us the... Uh, I guess the log line for Mortal Engines. What is this movie about if people don't know? Oh boy, this is a, a, a tough thing to try to summarize, but I guess I'll lead with uh, who's making it, and that is uh, Peter Jackson is producing it, and he wrote it with Flippa Boyan and Fran Walsh, who, co- who he co-wrote uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit films with. So it's very much a Lord of the Rings reunion. Uh, it is being shot in, in Wellington, New Zealand, on many of the same sets and locations Lord of the Rings were shot on. A uh, lot of the same crew, so it's this big even though it's not a very different thing, it's, it's very much uh, representative of that crew. And directed by Christian Rivers, who started off as a storyboard artist for Peter Jackson on Brain Dead or Dead Alive, depending on which title you prefer, and then became a uh, second unit director and visual effects supervisor, won an Oscar for King Kong. So it's this interesting reunion uh, where Peter Jackson said, we're going to make this movie, I'm going to give it to this guy who's been with me since 1992. Uh, so that alone makes it interesting, but... The premise here of this book, it's uh, the book it's based on by Philip Reeve, is set in the distant future, uh, centuries, millennia after the world has been decimated by a nuclear war. And in the wastelands of what was once Europe, cities have now become mobile. Like London still exists, but uh, a city that's stationary doesn't have resources, doesn't have food, doesn't have water, can't survive. So people have built cities in these massive moving behemoths on wheels and they traverse the wasteland and they hunt other cities like ship versus ship combat but with cities on wheels uh to try to get resources and supplies and that's the world that uh mortal engines set set in and things kick off from there so uh you know you mentioned like the the sort of uh i guess barren wastelands of this world and like the post-apocalyptic feel but this is not something and and that imagery that that description automatically conjures up images of movies that we've seen before something like mad max but this is not really going to be a mad max-esque uh dystopia is that right yeah exactly this thing i found very interesting is that this is set in a wasteland. It's set in a world where people are eating bugs uh, for meals and set in a world uh, where civilization as we know it now is completely gone and rendered uh, into dust and nuclear fire. Uh, but this is not a world. This isn't the road. This isn't Mad Max where people remember that world and are desperate and unhappy and are looking for ways to die or barely survive. This is set so far in the future that this is just the world. People are, are happy. This is life. They're getting by. They have jobs. They have a new culture to surround themselves with. Uh, so it's less of a dystopia or a post-apocalypse and more of a post-post-apocalypse or a post-dystopia. It is the world that rebuilt itself after, after the apocalypse. Uh, so it's not a doom and gloom thing. It's very much 
a almost a fantasy world that rebuilt itself from the ashes of our world. So it's sci-fi, but it might as well be a, a Middle Earth for how different it is based on just how things have changed in the 1700 years since the world ended. Yeah, so one of the uh, so you, you sort of described the hook of the movie, the premise, the world, but who are the characters that we're going to be following in this thing? I wrote a handy-dandy guide um, on Slashable.com um, for all the main characters that we, we know about and spoke to. And I should also say that uh, these characters have been changed a bit from the book. I read the book on the flight over to the set, and it's it's a solid YA book. But what's interesting is that they took this YA novel, this young adult novel, and as they said on the set visit, they matured it up. They made all the actors who were teens in the book into the late 20s. They have changed significant portions to make it a more mature uh, adult adventure. I mean, it doesn't mean kids can't see it, but it's not, it's not The Hunger Games, it's not Divergent. This is a movie about adults being adults. <laughs> um, but these characters who are all aged up, uh, the lead one is uh, Tom Natsworthy, played by Robert Sheehan. And he is a uh, historian in the city of London, which is, as I said, is mobile and hunting across uh, the wasteland. And he, uh, his job is he works in a museum where they catalog all sorts of ancient artifacts, things like CDs, iPods, computers, and in a really cheeky touch, uh, when you first enter the uh, museum set, there are uh, two statues that are labeled ancient American deities, and uh, they are minions from the Despicable Me franchise. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a uh, universal movie, so I guess that makes sense, a little bit it, of a, an in-universe nod there. <laughs> uh, the book actually mentions statues of the ancient gods Mickey and Pluto. Uh, <laughs> okay, but, like, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, they changed it for, for, for whoever has the rights. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, Tom is, is, works in the museum, and he looks up to Thaddeus Valentine, played by Hugo Weaving from The Matrix and Lord of the Rings. And uh, Thaddeus is like this... Um, swashbuckling archaeologist Indiana Jones type who ventures out in his airship and brings back technology to help London and then a, um, a after London devours a small city and brings his populace on board takes all of his technology to, to build into its own a, a woman among populace attacks Static Valentine and tries to kill him and then she plummets from London and Hugo Weaving's character Thaddeus pushes our hero Tom uh, with her because he's learned too much the fact that somebody is trying to kill him. So from there on, uh, in the book and the movie, we follow two storylines. We follow the city of London as a conspiracy is unveiled, and people start to uncover what's going on with technology and uh, what Thaddeus Valentine is up to and why he people want him dead. And we follow our two young heroes as they venture across the wasteland uh, in between cities on foot and encounter all kinds of crazy characters. Characters like uh, Anna Fang, played by uh, Korean pop star Ji Hai, who is this total badass airship pirate who has swords and guns and just kicks all kinds of ass in the, in, in the book and in the footage we saw on set, uh, which is all about her just destroying people. And uh, it, it's, it's fun because uh, when, in an interview with us, which you can read on the site, uh, she talked about how, how fun it was to have an Asian female hero in a movie that um, a big m m blockbuster $150 million movie and a movie where, where um, the two main characters are, not really action heroes. The big action hero in the movie is this Asian woman. So that's a very cool. If you if you like me, like to check out diversity marks. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, great. for sure. Uh, but the big draw here, um, in the interview, I would really like you guys to go read on the side because I can't even read it all. I spoke to Stephen Lang, who's playing a character named Shrike. He's a resurrected man, a mummified cyborg, uh, created for a long distant war that nobody remembers, but he's still alive and has amnesia, and he's just this. Um, crazy terrifying robot that Lang is playing the motion capture you may know Lang from um avatar and uh don't breathe very intimidating actor and, and, and he told us that he sees this character uh, uh moving like a bird 
Uh, he actually displayed it for us on, on, on in an interview, which you can't see in the interview, of course, when you read it. Uh, but he watched a bunch of YouTube videos of birds of prey and ballet dancers and incorporated that to play this zombie robot. So it's just this wild thing. That sounds really great. And yeah, as Jacob mentioned, we have a couple articles up on the site. I'll link to them in the show notes where you guys can read and find out much more about this crazy world. Um, one of the things that I found the most interesting was that uh, Christian Rivers, the director, said that he drew a triangle between Mad Max, Harry Potter, and Star Wars as like the nexus point for where they were trying to aim to hit this movie. So even though it was based on a young adult novel, like you mentioned, they sort of aged up the characters and they're really trying to, to uh, I guess, encompass a bunch of different quadrants of entertainment in order to tell this story. Yeah, and the trailer hit this morning as well. You can watch it on Slash Film. And what strikes me is that uh, it looks like Lord of the Rings. It has that same aesthetic. It has that same uh, quality, that same uh, sense of scope and scale. And Rivers is untested director, uh, so I'm curious to see how he fares behind the camera in a movie this big. Uh, but having visited the set, uh, maybe that helps me with the visuals, maybe it helps me uh, digest what I'm seeing more. But I got a really good feeling about this movie from the people working on it. And I know that's part of the thing about the set visits is they you, you have to. They, they, they're, they're there to sell you on this movie. They're right. going to get you to get excited about it. So you can go home and write positive things about it. But as somebody who really did not like the Hobbit movies, uh, I'm excited to see that uh, Peter Jackson, you know, said, okay, maybe I'll have somebody else direct this. I'll use my expertise as a producer to um, help this guy push forward and get it made. And I'm going to help my guy who's been storyboarding for me for 20 plus years. Let's, let's, let's get him a movie and I will do the best I can to make sure his vision gets delivered. Uh, so that alone makes me hopeful uh, and ho hoping that maybe Peter Jackson's using this time off from actually directing to maybe refocus on what he needs to do as a director. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Um, so really quickly before we go, did you have a chance to explore New Zealand at all when you were on your set visit? I, I talked about this a little bit uh, uh, last year. Um, I remember if it was on a podcast or if it was on the site. But yeah, I, I explored a little bit of Wellington. Uh, lovely place. I went to um, a couple museums. I went hiking in the hills. And I want to go back. I mean, it was one... I've been fortunate enough to visit a few cities around the world uh, on my set of visits, and Vancouver and, and Wellington are the two places where I said, yeah, I could live here. <laughs> it was just a genuinely nice place. Yeah, my wife and I visited uh, New Zealand in November of 2016, and Wellington, I think we, we went to both islands, and we were there for, I think, uh, about two weeks or a week and a half at least, and Wellington was the city that I liked the most out of all of the New Zealand cities that we checked out. So, uh, yeah, it's a really cool place, and if anybody has the the, the means or the inclination to, uh, to go visit, I would highly, highly recommend it, and sounds like Jacob would too. Um, so, yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. Jacob, where can people find these articles and everything else that you do online? Uh, everything is on SlashFilm.com, or if you want to hear me complain about life, uh, Twitter, where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. And you guys can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears, and you can find my stuff at SlashFilm as well. Uh, you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked in the episode notes of this podcast. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site, like uh, Jacob's set visit coverage. You can subscribe to SlashFilm Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com, and be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That would help us out a lot in terms of visibility. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>